This is a presentation of the Pitch Podcast Network. Hello, hello, and welcome to Streetwise, the podcast extension of The Pitch from Kansas City. I am your host and the editor-in-chief of The Pitch, Mr. Brock Wilbur. How are you today? Uh, We just put the new issue of The Pitch off to the printer last night. Always a good feeling, uh, except for, uh, you know, the the week that we've had. And the week that we've had uh, has seen a lot of snow and a lot of rolling blackouts uh, as the uh, the power company was unable to uh, figure out how to get everybody power. Uh, if you're not in Kansas City, um, basically uh, people would just have their power taken away for a couple of hours at a time uh, to send somewhere else or um, or maybe all day because uh, sometimes you'd turn it off for 60 minutes and then try to turn it back on and it, it just wouldn't turn back on. So um uh, a decent amount of our staff, um, now all working from home, um, just didn't have power for several of the days in the middle of our, of our deadline week. So that uh, that made things tricky. Uh, it, there's al- always already a time crunch, and then then we had that as a as a bonus. Uh, and then um, some of us uh, experienced uh, some illness sort of things. Uh, mine uh, came in the form of I got the. Uh, the second vaccine, uh, as we call it, the Fauci ouchie. Uh, I love saying it because I, I know I know it's fingernails on a chalkboard. It's it's just the worst, funniest phrase. And I love it so very much. And anyone that says it does not deserve it. Let's be clear on that. Me saying I got the Fauci ouchie means that I, I, I actually shouldn't be protected by anyone. Um, and uh, first one knocked uh, knocked me and the wife down pretty good. The second one, um, I am dying. I'm just straight dying. I think my arm is going to fall off of my body. Uh, I am going to get done recording this and crawl right back into bed. This is all of the energy I have for the rest of the day. Uh, this has been an, a fascinating time uh, for all of that, I suppose. Um, it, it is funny to hear from friends uh, on the coast who are like, how are you getting that? And it's like, well, I, I moved back to the Midwest. Like, sometimes there are benefits to not living in a, in a city of 10 million people. Um, but uh, that it's it's not just them because plenty of my own friends in Missouri are like, I don't even understand how do you get the first one. And they're right because our systems here are not doing so hot. Things are not going so well in that department in that there are something like eight different sign-up services just around this city. Uh, and some of them are directly with hospitals. Uh, some of them are for different counties, one for the city, uh, one for each of the states that we're in. And God, God bless you. If you're in Missouri proper, uh, cause you're just completely out of luck. The, the Missouri website, uh, that governor Parson has put into place, uh, is non-functional. Uh, it, it, not not that it's got problems. It literally does not work. There is nothing you can do. In fact, what you do is that uh, you put in your information and it tells you the closest county uh, where you can get a vaccine. Uh, and for most people, the result to that is none. There's no there's no counties. Counties no longer exist. Or what's worse is that uh, it'll give you a county and say like, yeah, you know, we could get you on the calendar for uh, for this county. That's like a three hour drive away. And some people are like, well, no, I'm not going to do that. And then they're like, look. No, to be done with this, to be done being panicked all the time, you know what, I'll, I'll do the drive. And then when you select that you'd like to do that, 
uh, the the computer comes back and tells you, actually, you know what, that county doesn't exist either. So it, it really sends you through this roller coaster of emotions of like, what will I do for a Klondike bar? And at the end of the day, it, it's too warm for a Klondike bar. There's no, no one's ever in, had chocolate or mint. It doesn't exist. Um, so, you know, that's a that's a fun wacky time. We're having a fun wacky time trying to trying to make that happen. My parents and my grandmother. Uh, all lived together in a, in the center of Kansas, uh, and they managed to get uh, their second shots uh, at the same time. My my town didn't really know when the vaccines were a coming. They just sort of dropped in like they fell off the back of a truck uh, to use mob parlance, um, and uh, and then they were just there. And the city's like, well, I guess everyone get on down here for for vaccine time, uh, and they didn't know where to put it. Uh, the hospitals were already flooded. So what they did is that they went into our small town, Kansas, dead mall, a mall with one or two shops still open. Uh, and then they just put people in long lines. Uh, and then they got a shot, uh, in the, uh, in the dead JC pennies in a JC pennies that hadn't had anything there for five years. Uh, and there's something just so beautifully American, exceptionally capitalist, that <laughs> the, the the thing that would end the plague uh, and its threat towards my grandmother is somehow taking her down to an evacuated Sears Automotive Center in an abandoned mall uh, where Amazon destroyed my town. I, it's just um, every, every part of it uh, gives you more questions or at least pause to be like, huh, it's odd that we've wound up here, isn't it? And it is indeed odd. I uh, I hope that you've gone okay this week um, through uh, whatever power or cold or, or what have you that you've <laughs> encountered. Um, my car slipped all over the ice uh, driving back and forth from trying to get the vaccine. The, the first one that I got, I almost got hit by a car uh, walking in the parking lot afterwards because the guy didn't see me uh, and had to swerve to miss me. And I was like, you know what? It would have made sense for me to be uh, killed uh, like the five minutes after <laughs> getting the vaccine. Like that's that's the level of irony death I've always predicted that I would have. Um, yeah, Brock Wilbur died as he lived, you know, being hard to see from five feet away. This six, seven giant idiot man. Um, yeah. And so uh, this one, you know, driving there, I was like, yeah, if I sl slip off the road or into another car and that's how this ends uh, to or from getting the vaccine, that's equally funny, uh, probably. So uh, just a dangerous crap time out there. But a magazine got done. The magazine is done. And in a week or so, it'll be in your hands. And it is a very, very pretty one. I think you're uh, you're really going to enjoy uh, anyway, we've got a great episode today of the Streetwise Podcast. Uh, we have next music corner as always. Later in the show, I'll be talking to an author friend um, about some politics. Uh, so hang out for that. But uh, up first today, we have a reading from our um, current magazine. Uh, it is a story by Emily Cox about uh, somebody named Megan Carson and uh, what Megan is doing to keep a long lost form of photography alive. Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment reads it for us now. How to Tin Friends and Influence People Megan Carson Mixes Poison and Darkness to Keep an Art Form Alive by Emily Cox With an old camera of boxes and bellows, silver nitrate that stains, and cyanide that poisons, Megan Carson is making photographs. As a tintypist, Carson travels, pre-pandemic and hopefully after, in her van to shoot landscapes and portraits using 200-year-old techniques. 
The resulting images are intimate and otherworldly. Compared to film photography, Carson enjoys the hands-on traditional process of making tintypes. If these old techniques aren't practiced and taught, they could be lost. It's important to me to preserve the past, Carson says, and that's a big part of my work. My goal with my work is to combine preserving stories from now with preserving a process from 200 years ago. Getting into making tintypes is not for the faint of heart. I spent like two or three months collecting my gear because it's not something you can just buy anywhere. I had to buy a special camera, and then I had to modify the camera and do all this research and find all the chemicals and figure out a darkroom that would work that was mobile. So it took quite a while. It's a lot of gear and it's expensive and it's time-consuming. It's not an ideal process for someone who just wants to make pictures for fun. In the wet plate collodion process to make tintypes, she prepares the plates by coating them with an emulsion containing silver nitrate, which is sensitive to light. So when the lens of the camera is opened, the light and shadow create an image on the metal. With wet plate, the actual piece of metal and the chemicals on them has to remain wet while you're taking the photo, and then you have to get back in the chemicals. So you only have a few minutes to do the whole thing. To function on the go, Carson uses a light, tight, portable hydroponics tent as her darkroom. Once the exposed plate is back in the chemicals, it develops in about 15 seconds, says Carson. And then you put it in a fixer, and that makes it not light-sensitive anymore. And then it's done. I varnished them, and then they're safe from getting scratched or fading for hundreds of years. The fixer used in the original tintype process is cyanide. Modern fixers, like the ones used by film photographers in their darkrooms, are far safer, and also work on tintypes. But the end result is different, and Carson prefers the look and authenticity of the original chemical formulas. Cyanide it is. It's very dangerous, which is why I wear a gas mask when I work in my darkroom, and it's actually not very easy to purchase. You may have seen Carson's work when she was creating playful stuffed monsters. That project culminated with a large human-sized monster aboard a streetcar as part of 2018's Art in the Loop. Now she says, I'm retired from sewing. Her monster, she says, just became so much of my public identity. I was the monster lady, and it didn't feel very expressive to me anymore. I was just manufacturing things instead of making art, so I quit doing that. Of all her art forms, which has also included drawing, photography was always her favorite. But, she says, I never thought I could make money doing it, so it was on the furthest back burner of all my practices. Things changed when her uncle passed away, leaving her some money. He was an artist, Carson says, and he was like, quit doing shit that you hate. Here's some means to get by for a while, and you can actually make what you want to make and be an artist. So I was more able to focus on what I wanted to be doing, instead of just making stuff hoping it would make me money. That gave her the means to buy her van, go to a tintype workshop in California, get herself the skills and materials to get started. And it paid off. Luckily, making tintypes, I've made more money than I ever did doing the other things I was doing, that I hated doing. I didn't hate drawing. I loved drawing. But again, it was, how can I make this appealing so people want to buy it, instead of just, I want to make this thing because it's important to me. I think that's a very common thing for artists these days. It's hard to make money and make what you want. So I feel lucky I can do that now, in pre-COVID days. When the pandemic shutdowns began in March, Carson was on her first long trip to travel around and make tintypes. She had to leave the desert a week before all the flowers came into bloom. My goal was to go on tour and set up pop-ups to make portraits. I could take breaks in between and explore and take landscapes, and then go into a town and meet people and make some money and make photos. I was doing it before COVID-19. She travels in her 1979 Chevy van that she fitted out for long trips, including a bed, sink, and stove. 
I built the van with all this in mind. There's enough space in there for my darkroom to be set up, but there's also storage compartments that the dog can't get into. Gotta keep the dog out of the cyanide. Much like she prefers the old over the new in her photographic process, Carson favors paper maps over GPS. I don't usually use GPS when I'm traveling. Using a paper map keeps me present. I actually have to pay attention to where I am and what I'm doing. Of course, her paper map is from the 1960s, so she occasionally finds that roads no longer exist or have been renamed. But it's also a map of where she's been. I draw on it. All the roads I've been on, which is the other reason I carry it with me. It's like a scavenger hunt to cross off roads. As the world shut down in March, Carson headed to hometown Kansas City. She recently learned that she's a sixth-generation Kansas Cityan. My great-great-great-grandparents lived here in the late 1800s, which is why I feel so comfortable here, but also just want to go away so badly. While she's been grateful to have somewhere safe and familiar to be during this year of uncertainty, she's itching for the road again. It's hard to feel inspired in the place you've spent your whole life. For someone who's very visual and needs visual stimulation, I'm just understimulated here because it's so familiar. During the pandemic, she's made some house call tintypes, making socially distanced portraits outside people's homes. When asked what she's eager to do when it's safe to travel again, it's landscapes. I love making landscapes with tintypes. It's really difficult. It's way harder than making portraits because I'm out in the wild. On the other hand, she says, In some ways it's easier because I can make ten and there's no one sitting there getting irritated. Or I can do a 10 second long exposure and I'm not worried about someone moving. While film camera exposures are typically tiny fractions of a second, tintypes may require 5 or 10 seconds. In a studio, she uses lights putting off a total of 10,000 watts. So it's an incredible amount of light that's needed, she says. Which is why they're really long exposures outdoors. Making landscapes in remote locations can also mean unpredictable conditions. High wind, shifting cloud cover, sudden storms. Making portraits comes with the task of managing the subject's expectations. A lot of her subjects are understanding or excited about the quirks of the medium. But some people don't really understand the whole process. I just want this old-timey photo of myself, and they don't actually understand how difficult it is to get that photo, and that there are a lot of things that can go wrong. She describes herself as a perfectionist, and with the tintype process, you kind of have to let go of your expectations. It's kind of mysterious, which is a cool part of it, but can be frustrating sometimes. There's a lot of challenges involved in tintype making, she says. The chemicals are really sensitive to heat and cold. If it's 80 degrees, it's too hot. If it's 50 degrees, it's too cold. And you could poison yourself very easily. And silver nitrate is clear when you're looking at it, but if it gets on your hand, the next day your hands will be black. It completely stains your skin. There's nothing really easy about it. But she persists, and the mystery and the challenge pays off. Carson says a friend recently observed that with her tintype portraits, it's like you can see more than just the person. You can see the souls of the people that there's an intimacy there. And that intimacy shows up in her landscapes too, something that doesn't exist in a modern color photo of a cactus or a mountain. There's more to it with a tintype, she says. It has more feeling to it. And now, ladies and gentlemen, your favorite part of every episode. Let's hear it for Nick's Music Corner. Hello, I'm Nick Spasic, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. Kansas City musician David Luther just released his latest single, Home to Kansas City, and it's a rousing ode to KC. Luther's been kicking around the area for over a decade now, with the self-titled EP released back in 2009, and the singer-guitarist having been a member of David George and a Crooked Mile since back in 2017. 
David George produced this big arena-worthy anthem for Luther, making Home to Kansas City sound like the kind of song that would open a triumphant homecoming show after months on the road. It's tailor-made for highlight reels of aerial footage of the KC skyline with its triumphantly longing chorus and massive sound. Coming out now right around the first anniversary of when COVID lockdowns started, I can totally see the song being embraced by all the locals who've been stuck elsewhere, unable to return to their friends and family here in the Midwest. You can find more information about David Luther at thedavidluther.com. Here's home to Kansas City. California dreams, they don't mean nothing to me, yeah. Colorado scenes, they don't mean nothing to me, take me home, home to Kansas City. Spent half a life trying to find, common love and peace of mind. Everything I'm looking for is waiting for me there at the door. Indiana fields, they don't mean nothing to me. South Dakota hills, they don't mean nothing to me. Take me.
So we're sitting out today with my friend Ross, uh, who is an author who has previously written a number of books that um, are best described as uh, Freakonomics with their pants off. Uh, it's it's uh, a, a collection of, of books about and essays regarding the theory around uh, sex, like what what makes us horny and what is the science of that? Uh, anyway, he has uh, turned his eye to the political arena for a new book that's just been released called Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. Uh, and uh, it's it's a really fascinating look at, uh, at the state. Uh, it feels like a good 20-year-on follow-up to what's the matter with Kansas. A lot of questions about why people keep voting against their own interests and... Uh, and what puts them in that situation. So um, here, here is that talk now. Ross, welcome to the show. Would you introduce yourself to the audience? Sure thing. I'm Ross Benish, the author of Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. It's good to be here. Where are you from originally? I'm from Brainerd, Nebraska. That is Brainerd. about a three and a half hour drive from Kansas City. Um, not that anyone from Kansas City is uh, probably driving to Brainerd. Well, I'm a Salina, Kansas kid, so I know exactly where you are. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, about about 45 miles northwest of Lincoln, for reference. Right. There. <laughs> Small town, 300 people, farming community, very conservative. It only becomes more conservative over time, too. What is your upbringing like? Uh, I, I ask in that way that, like, as small town Kansas... I was all the way through high school where I was still like, George Bush is very good. And then I had to go to college to meet other people and be like, oh, there's a problem there. <laughs> yeah, very conservative upbringing, very Catholic. So in my town, gotcha. it was settled by Catholics in like 90, even though I went to a public school, we actually had a higher percentage of Catholics at our public school than the Catholics had at the nearby Catholic school because they also had kids who weren't Catholic who were good athletes that they recruited. So um, <laughs> it, it was a very Christian public school, um, which is a oxymoron, but that's how it was. We all went to the same church, same school, hung out at the same bar, you know, place where everyone knows everyone. Um, not too many fans of Democrats out there or, you know, of most things progressive, really. So we're here today talking about your book. Would you tell us about what you've written? So the book is part memoir and part journalism. And what I'm looking at is how Nebraska has embraced the far right over my lifetime. I'm talking about a 30-year span where we went from a state that elected Democrats and Republicans to a state that only elects far right Republicans now. And I believe that was important because there's intention putting on this now, you know, after Trump became president. But my point with the book isn't um, all about Trump. It's, it's that how these changes in the Midwest helped enable a figure like him to rise. And the memoir part of it is how I experienced a lot of this stuff in Nebraska. So I, I, I talked to a lot of politicians about it, but I also write about my upbringing and, and things I witnessed. And I, I try to uh, show how things are viewed from that place without trying to mock them too much because I do still appreciate my hometown a lot, even though um, obviously being a, a writer in Brooklyn is not, does not make me a typical person of, of Brainerd. Well, we are in that period where everyone is considering that there is a possibility that this is the unity moment 
And as much as I might bristle at that term, there is a chance to welcome people back to the farm right now and be like, yeah, everyone lived in, in the wilderness here and uh, everything was fake and insane for a while. There are certainly some people in the middle that want to come home. Is that sort of why you're like, I, look, I know what it is like to be like, I should just shit all over my hometown, but like that doesn't bring anyone to the table. Was that part of what you were doing when you started from this is like, I want somebody from my hometown to be able to read this and maybe come to my side a little bit. <laughs> yeah, th there was definitely part of that. You know, I actually was criticized that on a different podcast that I um, <laughs> was too hard on people in the cities and on liberals in the Democratic Party and not enough on my hometown. And my response was that there's enough books like that with people just shitting on their hometown that I didn't want to fall prey to that. That's fantastic. Uh, I love that. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't think I'm actually going to convert anyone to, you know, have my viewpoint, but I would like people from my hometown and others like it throughout the region to be able to read the book without feeling that I'm just, you know, using them as material to make fun of, um, which I think happens a lot with people in those places. And then they tune off all messaging um, that isn't just from their favorite Facebook page or their fable, favorite um, cable news program. And, you know, they become an information silo. So I definitely was trying to reach across to those people who, you know, are further to the right of me, who I grew up with, to, you know, try to sound reasonable to them while respecting them. I recently had somebody uh, Facebook add me that I have not seen. I've not seen her since high school 15 years ago. And uh, she lives in Kansas City and I've recently moved back to Kansas City. And when the ad came through, I saw that uh, her header, her Facebook image, everything was like hyper QAnon stuff. And I was like, Ooh. baby girl, I don't know why you want to add me, the editor of a leftist publication, but like, um, oh boy. <laughs> every day I think about hitting the like accept button just to see just to see the rest of it I want to know there are some rabbit holes out there most people <laughs> that I grew up with don't have that on their profile but there are a few and um it is concerning uh those people I probably won't reach uh probably be real and being realistic which I think is an important thing for us to acknowledge is that like in this moment of unity, like there are people that have been radicalized that like, it's been said enough in the last four years that like we no longer share a reality, but um, that part of this unity movement is to be like, there should be, we should acknowledge collectively that there are people we won't reach. Like it won't get to them. There's no chance of winning them back. They're part of a base of a thing that goes where it goes. Like there's no argument we can, we composed, which I imagine was a difficult part of your book writing because um, I hope the compliment lands and I hope it's what you were going for. But I think that you are 20 years later, really fulfilling the promise of Thomas Frank's uh, what's the matter with Kansas, uh, but mm -hmm. for Nebraska, like that, that was the constant thought through reading your thing. It's like, I remember reading this in high school and being like, I think this person is talking to me and trying to make a point and I'm not sure if I'm getting it yet. Uh, and I, I hope that there's another high school kid out there somewhere in Nebraska reading yours in the same way. It's like, these are new ideas to me. Did did you have books like that as some sort of like construct as like, I, I can look to this or were you just like going in and being like, I will be me and we will figure it out. 
I definitely had books like that in mind. Frank's book was a comp title in my book proposal. Um, it's one that often comes up in conversation, which I'd rather have that book come up than Hillbilly Elegy. Like if, if I'm being <laughs> honest, if people are going to make a comparison, there's worse books to be compared to. Um, and, and there's a few others. Well, your in that book genre. isn't about how you're the hero for some reason. So sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the Hillbilly Elegy, it's also kind of weird too, because he only spent like summers in Kentucky. Like the book is about Kentucky, but like he's not from Kentucky. I, I, that always like kind of puzzled me. But anyways, uh, my book's about Nebraska. I lived there for 25 years. But um, the, no, those books definitely, I definitely did have them uh, in mind. The thing I wanted to do that was different though, was to make it more personal. Like, and, and there's books, there's other books like that, like Dan Kaufman's Fall of Wisconsin. Um where they diagnosed this problem, but I was a person on the right for a lot of my life. And I lived in a town, sure. like I didn't live in the suburbs of a city. I, I lived in like the most rural region in like the most conservative part of the state, 80 plus percent of my County voted for Trump both times. So, um, you know, Lincoln looks very liberal compared to where I'm from. E even, even the suburbs of Omaha, which have a Republican Congressman look liberal compared to my hometown. Um, well, so, Omaha's a blue oasis in some ways. <laughs> even though they have a Republican mayor as well. Right. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I, that's where I differ. I, I did want to put um, my experience in this atypical place front and center in the book. So talking about some of the same issues, because Kansas and Wisconsin moving to the right is, is happening for some of the same reasons that Nebraska did. But then, you know, talking about it as being a kid of the 90s and experiencing that in the Catholic Church and seeing right. how that influenced my own viewpoint for a long time. I mean, the culture wars had a huge impact on these things. Churches had a huge impact. Um, right. and, and, and for me, that's personal. It's not just um, an event that happened. That's a thing I lived. How many DC talk records did you grow up with? <laughs> DC talk records. Like, what do you mean by DC talk records? Oh, if you keep, if you grew up in the church, who were your uh, who your, who were your Christian rock bands? Oh, you know, I I didn't really have any Christian rock bands. There were some people who had those, and I always thought those bands sucked, even though I was quite Catholic. <laughs> even within the church, you're like, no, that's not for. Yeah, <laughs> like someone would like put on like Matt Carney or something like that, and I'm like uh, that's fine. But as soon as I leave this minivan that we're in, like I'm gonna be blaring ACDC. <laughs> or Van Halen or you know I was really into hair metal so wonderful I didn't get into Striper uh, I guess that would have been the natural band to to gravitate towards being a hair metal oh, Christian person there's a name I haven't heard in a decade wonderful yeah that that has become my sort of like code word with uh, other religious raised kids is like so yeah who was your uh, Jars of Clay who was your MXPX uh, and so we all get to traffic in that <laughs> So, yeah, why tackle, so the book is called Rural Rebellion, and the idea is that you are talking about what happened to Nebraska. What is your starting point? What is your end point? And what is sort of your goal in tackling this? Because to, to try and tackle the history of a state and why it votes against its own interests and, and what happened there in a culture war, it, it's always important to do so, but I don't even... I've wondered about doing it myself. I've wanted to do my own 
what's the matter with Kansas because it's been long enough. But I'm just like, I don't even understand where the starting point would be. So what was yours? <laughs> well, I, I just kept it to my lifetime. Um, it's arbitrary, but that the book's part memoir. So the starting point is um, like 1989 because that's when I was born. But the, the um, first paragraphs in the book are actually about the making of Tu Wong Fu, which was filmed <laughs> in my hometown during the 90s. I gotta say, it was the least expected intro I've ever seen to a book. It's probably the first time a, 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 a you know university press book on like a solemn topic starts with drag queens in a dress rehearsal and a trailer out in a rural area. But I thought that'd yes. be a fun way to bring people into the story. And what I liked about Tu Wong Fu, I use it as a starting point because at the time, Nebraska was pretty bipartisan. And... Um, what I liked about Tu Wong Fu, and this, I think this is the message of the movie too, for those who haven't seen it, is that the people respect each other's differences at the end of that movie. There are some cranks, but those are the ones that they make fun of and like drive out of town and like the townies even like um, turn on their own guy who is like the biggest homophobe. Um, That's a really good point, actually. <laughs> you know, they have this big party at the end when they know that like John Leguizamo and Patrick Swayze and, and Wesley Snipes are, are leaving town. And even though they're drag queens from New York City, like by the end of the story, they're all happy and, and they like each other. And, you know, and Patrick Swayze's sad to be leaving behind these friends that he made in the middle of nowhere. And I always thought that was really, it's a corny, campy movie. I always thought that was kind of beautiful and a thing that we could strive for. Uh, which, which we're far from that ideal is- now. Camp is accessible to everyone. Like, it doesn't matter what period of time my parents would like enjoy a camp film because you're doing the message, but it's just supposed to be silly and fun. And it's not the sort of very serious, like, why will no one accept me? Like, uh, yeah, it's, it, it is such an interesting line in. And I loved it as the intro to your book. Is there, is there an idea that you think that, uh, something like that could still resonate today. Is it possible that a Chu Wong Fu could speak to Nebraska in 2021 or is that off the table? And, and that's kind of where the book is. Um, I end on a little bit of a hopeful note, but the, the, the chunk of the book is about how something like that would be a controversy today. If right. there were going to be a movie in the middle of the country in a rural town about like, you know, drag queens on an expedition, Fox News, and like activists on Twitter would be making it into this like controversial thing. But There'd what be I love 15 minutes in the middle of the movie that you would have to do about like trans bathroom laws just to make it seem like it's part of our reality. Yeah. Oh yeah. There would totally, there would totally be some like political messaging <laughs> mixed into it, but also messaging coming in from people mad that it's just being made. Uh, you would have state senators on the floor like the most reactionary state senators, you know, saying, why are we bringing these godless heathens from Hollywood to town? You know, I, I could just see that happening. Whereas back then cable news wasn't as big and right. the internet well, wasn't the really culture a war wasn't people. there. So you, yeah. Like yeah. the movie, the hunt would not have mattered to anybody, but now it's something that the president had to weigh in on. And <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Now, you know, every advertiser has to weigh on like whatever inane controversy happened that day. The my pillow guy is advising on us on where we should go to war. Like, yeah, it's just fucking insane. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think Tu Wong Fu, uh, which I believe had a great message, would struggle to get made today in the place that it was, and 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 wouldn't be right. What I like about it is that for the people who live there, like me, I'm definitely included in this. People like it's like a fond memory. Like, 
a lot of these people aren't like progressive and they certainly aren't like people who would go to a drag show or you know be very like pragmatic about gay rights but they like are like oh too long was filmed in our town wasn't that great like, i always <laughs> like that, that that like dissonance there and now i don't think there'd be a chance to experience that uh, no you know, s- some crazy conservative would like just use it as a way to wedge people against each other there that guy would be like uh driving his truck up and down the main street so that we couldn't get the like establishing shot he'd be standing there with a gun and everyone would be like we can't shoot today like yeah that they would hold an anti-mask protest (laughs) at the filming site (laughs) god damn it yeah we uh a big part of our last week was we found a uh private facebook group where local anti-maskers were planning raids on different like grocery stores locally so they're like saturday morning we're all going to big hen and we're all going to rush in and they can't stop us and like a thousand plus people are in that group and we're just like uh like yeah this is one of those times let's just screen grab and name everybody <laughs> it's uh yeah i don't know what about uh, defending your rights uh, comes back to uh trying to murder people that are being paid minimum wage but it is what it is so what is the goal of your book like i i understand that you're like okay the target audience is as broad as i can make it it's people i went to grade school with it is trying to bridge this with and you're at least aware enough to be like my brooklyn friends need not come on this journey i have nothing to convince them (laughs) of at this point so like what do you do (laughs) so well my my two goals um one of them is to highlight how areas like nebraska have been driven to the far right and how it wasn't long ago that they were pretty moderate and i just want to bring attention to that because it doesn't always have to be the way it is now. And if states like Nebraska would just elect more reasonable Republicans or an occasional Democrat, that would go a long way to like making Congress function and pass like more sensible legislation. And it's not just Nebraska, it's the whole region. If you look at Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, um, the number of Democrats those states have sent to Congress since like 1990 has plummeted and it's had a huge effect on the nation like ben nelson provided the final vote for obamacare for nebraska that doesn't happen anymore there is there's no one like that in those states right now so i want to bring some like attention to that issue for people who live outside the state to be like well maybe something should be done here um the other thing though i do want to highlight some of the beautiful things about living in those rural areas like my hometown um And show that although it's unfortunate how much they've embraced the like reactionary side of the Republican Party, I still believe there's a lot of goodness there in that their votes don't solely determine their humanity. So, you know, I wanted to share some like fun stories I had while growing up there because they're always just like portrayed as this like desolate, you know, ghost town where like everyone's miserable and they're cranky and irrational and I think there's just like more to those towns. And that's like where the memoir part is um, the greatness of those places. Of course, I still left though. So they have a lot of issues to fix. <laughs> that's not a utopia. There's also problems. Uh, there's a lot of things to fix, but um, I, I think they're worth fighting for, you know, as a way to put it. 
It doesn't seem that way right now, though, because they're like putting terrible people in office that makes people angry. Right. There, there is that part of it that's like, um, you know, none of these towns can retain millennials. And I see your uh, bookshelf organized by color, just like mine is. <laughs> uh, and I moved to Kansas City from Los Angeles. And a huge part of that was being like, yeah, if we don't leave our uh, big uh, coastal liberal elite towers, like we'll never uh, get the votes back. And there's a part of me that wonders, especially because like every friend I have in Los Angeles, as soon as rent protections runs out, is going to owe a hundred grand that they can't pay and they're going to have to move back home. And I'm like, is there going to be a flood of liberal voters back to these states that like swings this for a generation just because no one uh, had rent protections? (laughs) You know, uh, something that I would love to see is more places being flexible with work from home and maybe COVID will help that the reason I live in New York city, it's not because I dreamed of always living in New York city. It's where I got the best jobs. And <laughs> like, it's tough to have um, media jobs in Nebraska right now. We, we only have two major newspapers and they're um, they've cut their workforce like in half since I've graduated college. And it'll keep going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're owned by the same uh, conglomerate um, Lee enterprise, which oh. um, hasn't had very labor friendly practices. Um, but if, if like all these magazines out here, like if all these media publications in, in New York and, and DC were more flexible in that thing, they'd probably have more reporters in the middle of the country. I may have mm. been one of them and, um, they'd probably be more in touch with covering those places, but instead, like everything's concentrated in like four cities. And I think it was funny. The Washington post like had a America's editor job come up like just recently and the job stipulation was like you couldn't work remotely you had to be in dc oops <laughs> and, and like i remember vox media had a distressed communities reporter job come up after trump got elected and that was another one it was like you had to be in the office in dc to report on distressed communities you know i don't know i guess you get the freelance budget to do it so like what is the thesis that your book puts forward that people should know like if you distill it down what is the message that like you would hope that somebody takes away from what you've written here. Yeah, that's uh, I, I need to get it better into a soundbite. Instead, I go on like seven minutes. <laughs> yeah, I'm rants. sorry because there's so much there. Like it's it's a ridiculous question. Yeah, but. no, no. Um, well, I think the thing to take away from the book is that our parties have become very nationalized and the book shows how some of the worser aspects of the Republican party have had a detrimental effect on local Nebraskans. So I'm looking at a a micro example of a macro trend, you know, as all the state parties become more similar and not much different from the national party, what does that mean? You know? So in Nebraska, that means like defunding public education. It means harsher uh, immigration restrictions means blocking healthcare access even when people pass Medicaid expansion by ballot measure. That is, to me, um, a story about the nationalization of the Republican Party where everyone down from the city council to the president is kind of adopting the same platform. Uh, And that has a bad effect in Nebraska. Republicans were so uniform on those things in the 90s, especially at the local level. Right. Because there was still some sort of like idea that you could 
care about the local issue without having to be subservient to some sort of national purity test. <laughs> yeah. Yep. There wasn't the online media sources to pull everything into a vortex. The percentage This of- local mayor has stood up against this thing, and that's why this Republican's the new AOC. Yeah, you can just yeah. come down so hard on anybody that actually cares about their local issues for performance. <laughs> yeah, you can, de- you can definitely do that. And, and the money, since campaign finance has been so deregulated, and I have a, I have a chapter on that, um, money that's coming in is increasingly coming from out-of-state sources. So like the percentage of uh, total money spent on like a Congress race or, or even a state Senate race in Nebraska that, that comes from outside Nebraska grows every election cycle. And that's the same with every uh, state right now. And when your donor sources aren't from your state, your policy positions will be less uh, dependent on like pragmatic things that people in your state actually want. Instead, it's like you're going to be you know, pushing things that your your donor class wants. I. I, I did look at uh, the spinoff uh, race in Georgia and was just like, they're going to make the GDP of a small like South American country just from the money flowing in from both parties ahead of this like one month like uh, runoff thing. Was, and it wasn't wrong. Like, it's just like, okay, good for Georgia on pulling that off. <laughs> the thing about living in Georgia, how much messaging you would have had to receive in January? It's nice for somebody else to be treated like Iowa. Good on them. (laughs) (laughs) A thing that I think about, I I think almost daily, is that discussion about um, the hyper-gerrymandering of the Republican Party and where it's put them in in terms of this thing. Like, I I assume that that's a a thing that you know about. (laughs) Yeah, well, so the hyper-gerrymandering... There is, there are a few races in Nebraska where this comes into play, like the second congressional district, which is Omaha. Part of the reason that's which, which, to be clear for a listener right now, the idea is that like Republicans have spent the last couple of decades gerrymandering these districts that like it doesn't even make sense. But you've got Republicans hyper aligned here, and then Trump comes along, and so you have this base, um, and so if you're trying to not be a lunatic Republican your base no longer exists. It's this weird turnaround on that where it's like, okay, well, like post him, you can't go back to being like, I don't know, QAnon is wrong uh, because the only people that are truly voting in your district are doing this, which, which is one of the reasons that like everyone keeps falling in line with stuff. So you're saying that in Nebraska, it is trickling down into that way as well. Well, it is in that, like in that Omaha district, they have been able to make it um, more favorable to Republicans and take out the the democratic influence and place it in places where they really have no chance of winning. But I think the democratic party in the state has been pretty inept because the, they've lost a lot of voters. Like the, the share of voters they have has declined by like 13 percentage points over my lifetime. And they lose the mayor's race, Congress, statewide races. I mean, gerrymandering can't explain everything, you know? Right. But um, I think something that could, reduce some of that craziness and bring back some sanity to the Republican base is if we adopted some better structures for how we determine primary candidates, like open primaries would probably make it so that the person on the very far right, isn't the one who always emerges because you would have more independents voting like in the primary who aren't right. so beholden to the party. Um, like ranked choice voting would be, you know, there, there's these things like that, that we could do. 
And Nebraska is a state that, that's experimented with stuff like this. We're the only state in the country that has a nonpartisan legislature. We're one of two states that splits our presidential electoral voting along with Maine, where we allocate our votes by each district and not statewide. Um, I am so goddamn tired of seeing that colored map where it was like, by the way, here's this little chunk here. (laughs) That's Biden, but everything else, not Biden. (laughs) Yep. There's a little, there's a little like blue speck. The number of people I had to explain it to where they were like, sorry, what state is that? I was like, oh, that's, that's new Nebraska, (laughs) new Nebraska. That's what's up there. It's a, it's a new little state that's happening. (laughs) It brings a lot of attention to one vote out of 538 votes, <laughs> which is good for them. They, they, they get, they get some money and they, they get uh, candidates to come. I, I guess my last big question here is like, um, having taken the time to write about this, which also like reading your book is incredible because uh, I don't know how you write a book about politics that is written pre uh, the resolution of this contested election and it still makes sense and is worth reading today. Like everything has become like one day is a thousand years in politics at this point. So like the fact that like it came out and it's, it's a wonderful thing people should pick up. What is the most hopeful message that you have taken away from this? What is, what is the nicest thing that you can say about our future? The hopeful message I would say is that if people can put issues forth outside of a partisan context, voters tend to be more reasonable. And I have a lot of faith in ballot measures because of that. So even though Nebraska is very conservative through like, you know, petitions, um, amending the state constitution, voters have passed Medicaid expansion, minimum wage increases, cap payday loan interest rates, and they'll probably help expand, uh, you know, marijuana legalization if if they ever you know get it to the ballot um that's hard to accomplish when everything's pitted as r's versus d's but right what's what's good about a ballot measure is that it isn't that way it's just the issue in two paragraphs put forth in front of you on a ballot and when it's looked at that way my home state doesn't seem so reactionary so that's what i feel hopeful about but you can't legislate you're you're excited about like a nonpartisan version of this but like Everything that truly matters is now defined on partisan terms. Is there any hope there? Because, like, yeah, those are minor things. Like, should you know, a 05 percent sales tax help the school? What about when it comes to things like reproductive rights? Yeah, well, the, the, so the shit that matters. What is very, very, are? very, very, very anecdotal. This is opposite of data, gotcha. which okay. is which is what I um. I, I'm a data analyst in my day job. So I'm always like, oh God, this is just a story that may not have any generalizability. <laughs> but something that I was hopeful about is- Sorry, my... I, love you, I love you dunking on yourself. Like, yeah. these are my hopes. My hopes are bad when yeah. it comes to the spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, I have these hopes. They're not statistically significant, but they are my hopes. That's what I'm saying. Uh, Something that made me hopeful, though, is uh, my parents um, left the Republican Party um, during Trump's first term because they hated um, what he had done to the party. And And they voted for him, right? The first time, yes. They voted and then they were like, whoops. Okay. Yeah, they're like, whoops. Okay, now now we we like Biden and this party has gone off the deep end. Um, And maybe it had before, but I mean, think about when you're living in a conservative town of 300 people. And they don't have, they don't 
use the internet, you know, they, they so. How does it trickle down in their daily life? Sure. <laughs> so um, I, I'm just saying that's a story uh, showing that not everyone is a, a lost cause. You know, I think there are some reasonable people, even if they're very conservative, who are seeing this and going, wow, uh, you know, we should try to do something else. What is the name of your book and where can people find it? The name is Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. And uh, you could find it on any website where books are sold. I like bookshop.org or the University Press of Kansas. Uh, you could use Amazon, but they're kind of evil. Uh, and you may be able to find a bookstore in your neighborhood that'll let you do online orders. I can't say much about in-person shopping because uh, it's COVID. We're living in a society where you can't browse. Ross, what's the last movie you watched? <laughs> what's the last movie I watched? Oh, shit. Um, I'm trying to think what I've watched this week. Oh, you know, I, I, I finally watched Garden State this week. Garden State this week. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's been out for like 18 years, I think. And we had Monday off, and I was like, I've been meaning to watch this for a Garden State Day. Absolutely. No further questions. Thank you so much for talking to me. Have a wonderful day. Well, thanks for having me on the program. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Streetwise from the pitch here in Kansas City. I am your host and editor-in-chief, Brock Wilbur. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Um, Please visit our website or really any other website that you can. Uh, to try and get information on getting signed up for the vaccine if you haven't yet. Uh, as as much as uh, I need to take a nap today, I, I promise you it is worth it so that we can go have America again uh, sometime soon. Please, please take care of yourselves. Please take care of each other. Uh, be kind to yourselves. Check out thepitchkc.com. We have published a couple of really huge stories this week uh, that... Um, yeah, you'll know them when you see them. Uh, they are well worth they are well worth your time. So dive on there and uh, consider becoming a sustaining member of what we're doing. Uh, we we certainly need all the help we can to get lights uh, to keep the lights on, and um, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing as long as we can. Because uh, I I love the city. I love being here for you. Uh, I love trying to make it a better place each and every day. Except for today, because I have to take a goddamn nap or I'm going to die. Anyway, love you all very much. Take care of yourselves. Pitch in and we'll make it through. Bye. This was a production of the Pitch Podcast Network. The Pitch is Kansas City's independent source for news and culture. Check out thepitchkc.com to see more podcasts from us, including information for how to subscribe to The Pitch or become a sustaining member. Story ideas or feedback? Write to tips at thepitchkc.com. Pitch in and we'll make it through.